Hey, everybody. Uh, let's pray. Uh, Jesus, true freedom is through you. That's it. There's no other way. Everything is from you, by you, for you, to you, and because of you. Thank you for that. Thank you for rescuing us. Thank you for the opportunity to, to know you personally and intimately <clears throat> and to spend forever with you. Be with us today. Give us eyes to, to see and ears to hear and hearts to respond. In Jesus' name, amen. You can be seated. One quick announcement, and then I'll introduce our speaker today. Um, as you know, we're asking for commitments towards the down payment on our new building, $398,000. Um, we're asking for those commitments to come in by October 30th. There are three ways to do that. One is you can fill out a card in the back. The second way is you can scan the QR code and follow those instructions, or you can go to ChristPoint.com and click on the, the pledge form. Again, 398000 by October 30th. Um, what's interesting to me is that there are, I've estimated, somewhere between twenty to 30,000 cars that pass in front of where our church will be every single day. Uh, there are a lot of people, there's a lot of traffic, there are a lot of people in this area, and God has designated some of them to spend forever with him, and they don't even know it yet. That's what we're doing. That's what we're doing. And so I'm grateful that, that we can come along, uh, alongside each other and be a part of what God is doing. Uh, we will never, ever, ever, ever regret it, I promise you. I promise you. Um, with that, I want to introduce our speaker, Jordan Merkel. Um, how many here know Dolly Merkel? I think a lot of people do. They recognize that uh, Dolly is much cooler than Jordan, similar to my wife. But um, I, I love the Merkel family. Evangeline and Arabella, they're beautiful daughters. Um, they've been a part of our church for a while now. And Jordan has a really cool story. Um, I get excited when people go to the Middle East, um, and he's been serving with crew for almost 20 years in that role, now part of the humanitarian uh, branch, which he may, he may share some of that with him. Uh, Jordan also leads uh, is a student leader and is a small group leader here at Christ Point, so he's all in. We're so grateful that he's here. Uh, you're going to be blessed by what he has to say today. So Jordan, come on up. Good morning. All right. Well, um, yeah, uh, he's right. My wife is much cooler than me. Um, unfortunately, she's not here this morning. We got our little girls who are often here. My, especially my two-year-old is often the one running around and back during the sermon. Um, but yeah, they're a little sick today, and so um, yeah, they they decided they just had to stay home and get better. So, but anyway, uh, we're, we're jumping into the book of Proverbs, uh, and it's, it's actually really humbling um, to, to get to kind of, to be the first to lead us into this as a church. Um, I know when I was preparing, uh, I just, ah, man, I was so challenged by even just studying and thinking through things. And uh, I love the book of Proverbs. It's been a very impactful book on my own life. I actually... Uh, uh, I had a Sunday school teacher um, 
in like middle school. Uh, awesome man of God, one of the most impactful people in my walk uh, with the Lord. And he just loved the book of Proverbs. So almost every Sunday we'd, we'd be in the book of Proverbs at, at some point, you know, a verse here, a verse there. And he, I think for about 40 years, he had, he had read a proverb a day um, without fail, which is just, man, what a legacy to live up to. And so um, coming to the book of Proverbs, it actually, yeah, it's humbling because it, it did impact. Um, there, there are just people in my life that have just loved the book and have impacted me so much. And so, um, yeah, it's just a, a real honor to be able to, to lead us off. And we're going to be talking about work today. Um, and what the book of Proverbs has to say about work, and really what the, the Word of God has to say about work. Um, but before we jump in, I mentioned, uh, you know, I got, my, my daughters are sick at home. Um, I actually got shingles this week, so I've got some rash up and down my arm, and I just, I feel like as I was preparing, I was also getting a little attacked, um, but it just makes me, me believe that God, God has something for us today. Um, and so I ask that you pray for me, um, just as we, as we jump in real quick, just pray for me, pray for, um, yeah, the words that I say, that it would be exactly what God wants you to hear. Um, and so I'll pray real quick and you can join me. Um, Lord, I ask that um, as, we, as we jump into your word this morning, that nothing that I say is of my own making or own device, but that it is all from you. And that, um, yeah, the words that come out of my mouth would be honoring and pleasing to you and would be encouraging and challenging for this group. Um, and then I, I, I love how James, he starts every Sunday the same way, so I'm just kind of co- copying his formula. Pray for yourselves. Um, we all, we don't pray enough, and so pray for yourselves right in this moment. Just take a, a few seconds and just, Ask that you wouldn't be distracted and that you would hear exactly what God wants you to hear today. So, uh, Lord, I, I pray for this group, and I pray that they would uh, hear only what you want them to hear and that they would walk away um, just a little bit closer to you, a little bit more in love with you, a little bit more knowledgeable of you, and um, more equipped to face the week ahead of them. And we pray these things in your name. Amen. All right. Well, um, I mentioned we're in the book of Proverbs. And uh, Proverbs, like I said, played a big role in my life. But in re- reality, they, they play a big role in all of our lives. Not just Proverbs from Scripture, but our, our culture, global culture, is full of Proverbs that impact us, Right? And, and also fables, right? Stories are, and Proverbs are, are very similar, right? We learn a lot of things from stories. We learn a lot of things from simple sayings. And I know that there's so much moral truth that we often find in these. And um, I was uh, sitting at home with my daughter and watching one of her favorite Proverbs, uh, Coco Melon. Maybe you guys are familiar with this. And uh, it comes on, and my wife knew what I was talking on and says, you got to mention this because it just fits right in. And so I'm going to read you a proverb of Coco Melon um, real quick. It's a song that comes on, and my, my tablet just went off. But uh, let me read it for you. So 
In the summer, the ants were working, bringing food to their hill every day, while the grasshopper sang in the sunshine on his fiddle, his song he did play. I don't know why this keeps turning off, sorry. Um, in the autumn, the ants were still working, but the grasshopper still did not care. The ants asked, why don't you store food for winter? When it's cold, you'll have no food to spare. Time went by, and along came the winter. I'm having trouble here. And along came the winter. Uh, and the wind gave a cold, icy chill. Snow fell down, and there was no more sunshine, so the grasshopper went up the hill. In the valley, he went to the anthill. He was cold and embarrassed and sad, but the ants told him that he was welcome. Then he thanked them, and they felt very glad. Sweet little tale, right? It's a nice little song. It's cute. If, you're, if you've heard this tale before, you think you've heard it before, it's actually a, a, a very old story, um, Aesop's Fables, if you've ever heard of Aesop. Uh, he recorded a very, very similar story to this. Uh, in around 600 BC, so it goes back quite a ways. Um, the funny thing is, Aesop's story is a little different. It's actually a cicada and not a grasshopper. We do see some later versions, later copies, where it's a grasshopper of Aesop. Um, but there's, there's a little difference in the ending. The grasshopper dies in Aesop's fable. He doesn't, he doesn't get to go join the ants, right? He didn't work. He didn't store his food, and he dies. Um, so Coco Melon's a little bit of a liar, but I'm going to still let my kids watch it. But there's, there's actually more truth in the fact that the grasshopper dies, that the cicada dies. Um, it's just that's the way the story goes, and that's, that's kind of how things are. Um, and we actually see that there was somebody who recorded a, a similar story a little bit before Aesop did. Actually, about 300 years, we see... Solomon wrote down in the book of Proverbs um, a kind of a similar story, uh, looking at ants to teach us how to, how to, uh, I'm sorry, my, my tablet keeps turning off on me. I got to get this fixed real quick. But in the book of Proverbs, uh, Proverbs chapter 6, man, I told you guys, I feel like there's some things going on here. All right. Uh, give me 10 seconds here, and let me fix this, and then we're going to read Proverbs chapter 6. Let me do this. I've got, I've got my paper notes. Give me one second. That's why we always have a backup. <clears throat> All right. Proverbs chapter 6, 6 through 11. Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways and be wise. Without having any chief, officer, or ruler, she prepares her bed or bread in the summer and gathers her food in harvest. How long will you lie there, O sluggard? When will you arise from your sleep, a little slumber, or a little sleep, a little slumber, a little folding of the hands to rest, and poverty will come upon you like a robber and want like an armed man. Do you see the similarities with Aesop's fable? Go to the ant and learn. Uh, and so we are going to go to the ant today, and we're going to learn from the ant. But before we get to that, um, 
this proverb is actually addressed to the sluggard. So first we got to say, who is this sluggard that, that this proverb is addressed to? So let's, let's take a look at who is the sluggard. Now the sluggard, another word we use for this is the sloth. Now when we're saying this, we're not talking about the animal, we're talking about a person, of course. Um, and if you're familiar with you know, Christian doctrine and history, and there's, there's a lot of stuff written about sloth. In fact, in the um, early church fathers actually wrote about the sloth and, and called it one of the seven deadly sins. Right? You don't see any title of seven deadly sins in the Bible, but we do see early church fathers categorize seven sins that are, are deadly, and sloth is one of them. And sloth is actually pretty unique in that it's the only one of those sins that is the sin of omission, meaning it's something you don't do versus something you do do, right? The rest of them, like lust or greed, these are things that you actively do. Sloth is something that you, you don't do. Um, and so there's a lot of great teachings and writings on, on sloth, but the best place to go is actually the Bible itself. Right? Whenever we're looking at things, I want to I define what sloth or sluggardness is with what Scripture says. And where else than Proverbs? So Proverbs chapter 26, 12 through 16 says this. Do you see a man who is wise in his own eyes? There is more hope for him, than, or there is more hope for a fool than him. The sluggard says, there is a lion in the road. There is a lion in the streets. As a door turns on its hinges, so does the sluggard on his bed. The sluggard buries his hand in the dish. It wears him out to bring it to his mouth. The sluggard is wiser in his own eyes than seven men who can answer sensibly. You guys catch what this is saying? This is saying there's, there's something more to the sluggard than just being lazy, right? I mean, you, you even look at this. If, if you, let's just take each one a little bit, right? The, the sluggard says there's a lion in the road, right? This is an excuse. He's saying, ah, I can't come to work because there was a lion in the road and, and I had to go home. Does this sound like the dog ate my homework type excuse? Right? That's, I think that's exactly what it is. It's, it's kind of a ridiculous excuse that we should all know is a lie, right? Especially you think about the time they were living in. And people lived in villages. You went and you worked in this village. If there was a lion in the road, everybody in that village would know that there's a lion in the road. Your employer would have known that you were lying. The sluggard doesn't care. He makes up dumb excuses. I find I do this myself. I make up dumb excuses. You probably make up dumb excuses for why we can't do things. Uh, it happens in my own home sometimes. I'm not going to say who does this, but uh, sometimes we see beard trimmings on the sink in my home that aren't cleaned up. Uh, my wife and daughters don't have beards, so it's obviously me. Who ha I don't take the 30 seconds after I trim my beard to wipe up the sink. It takes 30 seconds, right? But I use an excuse like I'm busy, I've got to get on this or I've got to do this, but it's, it's a dumb excuse. I just pretend I'm busy. I just think that I have a better reason of whatever I'm going to do next than to take 30 seconds to wipe up beard trimmings. Right? I'm, a, I'm a sluggard. I'm a, I'm a, I am that sluggard. 
right? And it's, I mean, I could go on and on with a bunch of examples how this is true in my own life, but let's, let's look at the next thing that it says. It says the sluggard, right, they're searching for rest, right? They're laying in their bed, they're turning back and forth like a door on its hinges, right? They're, they're looking for this rest, but they can't find it. They're restless. They, would, they don't want to get out of bed, right? They've got responsibilities they've got to do, things they've got to go, but they're just, they're restless in search of rest, and they can't find it, right? Um, and we're, we're going to talk a little bit more about that because the rest is distorted. But um, the, it also says he's so lazy, he's got his hands like in a bowl of food, and he can't bring it to his mouth. Right? That's how lazy the sluggard is. And I think there's more than just laziness here. There's, truthfully, it's idiocy. I mean, that's the best way to say it. Like, who on earth has their hands and they're hungry in a bowl of food and is unwilling to bring that food to their mouth? Right? It's, it's not about just laziness here. There's, there's something going on in the mind and the heart of the sluggard that is preventing them from doing what they know is going to help them, what they know is going to feed them, what they know is going to give them life. And then one of the, the easiest ways to define a sluggard here and connecting it so much to the fool is that they don't take good advice. Right? They're told seven different wise counselors are saying, here's what you do. Here's how you do it. And the sluggard just says, no, I know better in my own eyes. I know what to do. Right? So there's just so much more in the heart and mind of the sluggard than laziness. And in fact, Proverbs 13, verse 4, says that the soul of the sluggard craves and gets nothing. There's a longing that the sluggard has, a desire that they have, and it's misordered, and they'll never be satisfied. They're not getting it. I love what Tony Renke says about sluggardness or sloughness. He says, it's a chronic quest for worldly comfort that compounds with boredom. Catch that? Chronic quest for worldly comfort that compounds with boredom. You're chasing anything to make you comfortable, but all it does is bore you. And I, I just think this is so true in our, in our own lives, right? We quest for comfort, and it's this misordered desire, something that we think is going to fill us up, but it's selfish pursuit of our own interests. And it costs... It's at the cost of others, or it's at the cost of responsibility, or it's even at the cost of morality. All right, it's, it's this pursuit of self-interest. And so that's who the sluggard is. I think that's who we all are. I think we need to pay attention to what this proverb is telling us. And... You know, we, we need rest. We want rest. That's what the sluggard is, is going after. But 
we just can't find it. And there's, there's a reason why we don't really find it. And it's because our, our, our idea of rest is broken. It was broken by the fall. Everything is touched by sin. And everything is touched by the fall. So one, one thing we do know is that when we seek rest above other things, we don't really, truly find it. See, uh, you think about what we do for rest, right? You gotta, you gotta, this ties in with work, too. Right? You're, you work and you try to make a name for yourself, but if you ever stop, right, that name lessens. I mean, think about it. If, if you're working really hard to become the wealthiest person on earth and then you stop working, somebody's going to pass you, right? No matter how well you do, you will be forgotten for the most part because somebody's going to surpass you. And so it makes us not want to rest, but you need that rest. Or we, we go on vacations, right? We go have fun, and then we get bored. Who's been on vacation, and after a few days, feel like you're ready to go back because you just get bored? You get, you know, this rest that we're pursuing is broken. Don't get, and I'm not saying there's anything wrong with vacations here, but we get bored easily. We, we grow weary because we're chasing a rest that is ultimately unfulfilling. Right? We're trying to find fulfillment in the rest, but it's unfulfilling. And that's, that's the trap of the sloth. Right? That's the trap of the sluggardness that's affected our lives. I think there's two really big traps that we do. is We first think rest is a means to itself, like a means to an end of itself, right? It's a, it's a purpose, right? That's what, that's what a lot of people believe rest is, right? We work so that we can rest, right? We work hard. We want to reach our goals so that we can have enough comfort to do the things that we think we're, are going to give us rest, right? And this sometimes means we, we pursue that rest at the expense of things like play, worship, relationships, right? Those things are all affected because we're working so hard to find the rest, and then we think that those things don't bring us rest, right? It's that vacation. It's that, you know, uh, whatever it is you want to buy. It's the TV shows you want to watch. It's those are the things that you think are going to give you rest, and it comes at the expense, right, of the other things in your life that might actually give you rest, so one is that, you know, we're pursuing rest as a, a means to an end in and of itself. That's one of the great traps of rest. The other great trap, I think, is that rest just becomes an escape. We become tuned out to the world. And it's so much easier today than it's ever been because we have things like Netflix or Amazon Prime or Disney Plus where you can turn on a TV show and then boom, the next one comes on the next one comes on. Before you know it, you've spent a few hours just watching TV, turning off your mind to anything. It doesn't even become about entertainment at one point. It just becomes about turning yourself off, right? That's, that's such a danger. And it's not restful. It's not fulfilling. 
It's just turning off your mind. And I, truthfully, I mean, I, I fail in this. I'm not, I'm not here judging anyone because this is so convicting to me. But it destroys us. When we escape and we turn off, it rots our relationships, not just with each other, but with God. It will rot you slowly over time. You may not notice it one night or the next night or the next night, but in 10 years down the road, you're going to be looking at yourself wondering what happened because it's going to rot you, and it's going to rot the relationships in your life and it's going to rot the relationship with God. So this is, this is why rest is broken. And this is why the sluggard, in their pursuit of rest, can never find it. It's constantly chasing something to please himself. The sluggard wants to please himself in life, in work, in searching of his own rest, and in finding comfort, and yet cannot. And I, I think one of the reasons why the sluggard truly cannot find rest is, is not just because rest is broken. You know, the sluggard, or all of us really, are trying to escape work. And we do that because work is broken too. So we need to look at how work is broken um, to really understand this passage as well. Because once again, I mentioned everything was touched by the fall. Right? Everything was touched by sin, and that includes our work. I mean, work is hard. It's, it's laborious. It's, I mean, it's why we tie labor and work together, right? That's why we, we call a woman who goes into labor, labor. Right? It's hard work. It's exhausting. I mean, uh, you think about the fall. Think about the story of Adam and Eve, and they sin, and what God says to them. Right? He, God says, Adam, you're going to be working the ground, and the ground's going to produce thorns and thistles, and they're going to choke out your work. Right? In fact, the ground is going to be cursed. Right? It's going to be cursed, and it's going to be difficult, and it's going to be hard. And he even says, by the sweat of your brow, right? you're going to be sweating because it's not easy work. By the sweat of your brow, you're going to have to work the ground this cursed ground that's bringing up thorns. And guess what that means? That means our hands get callous, our feet get blisters, our back aches and hurts. I mean, most of us probably don't go work outside in the field anymore. But how many people have hurt backs from just sitting at a computer? I mean, I do. Like, even, even our non-hard labor work breaks us down. Our bodies grow weary. And this is a result of the fall. When I, when I think about work and I think about like somebody who I just know had worked really hard in their lives, and, and this is, I just think of my grandfather. My grandfather was a farmer. For 50 years, he grew corn. And I remember sitting there even as a, as a little kid. Right? He grew corn. He did some other things as well. He grew, grew stuff. And in the seasons where they weren't harvesting, like in the winter, he would work in a shop. He taught taught woodworking and shop at a local community college up in this little little town in, in Ohio. Um, but I remember sitting with my grandfather, and you could see the calluses on his hands. Somebody who worked all of his life in the field, 
Somebody who always did physical labor. And I just, I have vivid memories of just seeing somebody who was, who was just a hard worker and it took an effect on his body. Not in a bad way. He still had very gentle hands. He was a wonderful man of God. Um, I'm so grateful for him, but like, I've, I've got memories of just feeling his hands and seeing him and, and seeing the effects of work on, on the body. And so this leads us, right, because work is hard. This leads us to do work poorly or wrongly or selfishly with ambition or out of jealousy, right? Because before the fall, right, before the fall, we worked in harmony with God and creation, and, and it, was, it was an act of worship. Now it's hard. And so we work for survival now. Hey, we got to eat. We tie our self-worth to our jobs. I mean, or our name or our status. And you know how I know this is true? How often do you find out what somebody's job is immediately after meeting them? Right? We find identity in our work. And then we also put that identity on others in their work. Right? Almost without fail, one of the first things we learn about somebody, maybe we learn their name, maybe we, we learn you know, their kid's name, their wife's name, whatever. But almost one of the first things we learn is, so what do you do? What's your job? Are you a student? Are you out of college? Are, you know, what kind of job? What do you want to become when you grow up? These are the things we place on people because we've placed such identity into work. We've made that who a person is. And we do it about ourselves too. It's where we find our status and our identity. It's what we tie our self-worth to. And the problem is we'll, we'll never be satisfied with that. I don't care if you love your job. You may. I, I love my job. But my job is not who I am. It's something I do, but it's not who I am. Right? There's always going to be more to do and more to achieve in your job. You'll never be satisfied, truly, truly satisfied in just your work. And this leads us to be jealous of other people's successes. Right? Because you see somebody get a promotion above you and you think you deserve it, you're jealous, right? Or you see people with talents that, man, I wish I could do my job like them. You're jealous. Or maybe you do achieve stuff, but it's a selfish ambition. And it's at the expense of other things. James 3.16, James is often called the Proverbs of the New Testament, so it fits well says, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder and every vile practice. There is disorder and vile practice in the work we do. doesn't matter what your job is, because there is going to be an aspect of selfish ambition, and there is going to be an aspect of jealousy. It's because our work is broken. 
Our work is broken, our rest is broken, and we cannot fix it with our own behavior. Now we're finally going to get into the rest of the proverb. We've got to look at something else beyond ourselves, because truthfully, we're all that sluggard. We're all that sloth, and we're all fighting broken work. And so, what do we do? We go to the ant. That's what the proverb tells us to do. Go to the ant and consider her ways. Be wise without having a chief or ruler. She prepares her bread in the summer and gathers her fruit in the harvest. So I looked at that verse and I said, I'm going to go to the ant. So I did a little research about ants. Pretty fascinating creatures. Some of this I knew, some of it I didn't know. But, you know, ants are, they live in colonies. They're pretty complex little creatures. And there's a bunch of different jobs that ants have. Some ants, they go out and gather food. Those are the ones you normally see. If you see an ant in your home, it's probably one of the gatherers. They're going out. They leave the colony to find food. But there's other ants that are, are soldiers. They protect from other bugs or other things. You know, if you go step on an anthill, you're going to get bit. Those are the soldiers going after you. Um, those are probably the two, and maybe the queen, you know, which isn't really a queen, right? It's just the one that lays eggs. Those are probably the ants we're most familiar with. But there's actually ants that, are, that do all the building. There's other ants that actually do cleaning. Right? They've got to get the waste out of the anthill. And there's some that actually take the food from the gatherers and they give it to the rest of the ants. Right? Ants have division of labor and they do all these things. And believe it or not, there's actually some ants and until not that long ago, they, they were just called lazy ants. But they're not actually lazy. About the, the estimates are about 30 to 40% of ants, if you were to observe these ants, they do nothing, at least at first first sight. But as they were studied, they found out these were backups for the whole ant society, right? Ants, they would actually, so these ants would get food, and if ever the gatherers couldn't gather enough food, these ants actually grew a little fatter than the rest of the ants, they would give up some of their, their food stores in their body to other ants, which is kind of crazy. So they were like a backup food source, but then they were also the backup workers, Right? The, work, the gatherers and the, the soldiers were the most likely to die. And so whenever some die, one of these ants gets activated and does their job. They're backups. They need it because ants, they get stepped on, right? They get, they get destroyed. There's other insects that hunt them, and some get lost. I mean, every ant has a job to do. And it's, they're pretty fascinating. And so there's a lot we can learn from this. Um, one, one of the first observations is that every single ant has its job, and there's dignity in that job, because without it, the rest of the ants die. It's, it's true. If the builders didn't build, they'd have no place to live, and the rest of the ants would die. If the gatherers didn't gather food, none of them would eat. If the soldiers didn't protect, they would all get destroyed. Even if the cleaners didn't clean out the waste, the colony would end up collapsing upon itself. And if there weren't those backup ants, nobody would, would step in and take the place. No ant is more important than any other ant. 
They each have their job, and they each do their job, and there's dignity in that work. And there's no status. The soldiers aren't walking around thinking they're better than the gatherers, despite what maybe the movie Ants or Bugs Life or something like that might tell us. Like, every ant is perfectly content with their work, and they don't compare each other. They're all important, but they're all replaceable. There's a backup system for all of them. None of them can be thinking that they're so important that if they leave, life goes on, right, for all the other ants. Like, life's just going to go on for the rest of the ants. They've got people to replace. They've got ants to replace each other, right? So while there's dignity and, and beauty in each one of their work, they're not so important that they think that, that without them, the world's going to end. And one of, the, one of the very remarkable things about an ant that I found is no ant can live alone. If an ant ever leaves its colony, it'll die in a few days. It just can't survive on their own. Even if it's a gatherer and they sit and they eat their food, they, they will die on their own. So we're a lot like the ants, and there's a lot we can learn from the ants. And so when we, when we look at these things, I, I want to transpose this onto our own lives. Because there is honor and dignity in the work you do, no matter what job there is. And I think if we can understand this, we bring a little redemption to the brokenness of work. So God... Before the fall, he actually placed Adam and Eve in the garden and he told them to work the ground. This was before the fall. After the fall, the work became hard, but work was part of God's original plan of creation. And God called work good. He called it good. And this is actually a very unique Christian perspective, especially in the ancient world. There's other ancient stories um, perhaps you've heard of Pandora's box. There's other ancient stories like Pandora's box where work is actually an evil put upon humanity, right? Pandora's box is the story, I, I believe it's Greek, where you know this guy opens up a box and all the evils of the world are unleashed, and work is one of those evils that are, are jumping out. Um, there's actually another Mesopotamian um, creation story called the Enuma Elish. So this is the Mesopotamian gods, you know, right there um, where the, the ancient Jewish Christian world would have been, or Jew, Jewish world, right? The Enuma Elish, the gods actually decide that work is below them, and so that's why they create humanity, to do the work that is beneath them because it's an evil. It's something they don't want to do, and so... We're going to create humanity to do work so we can rest and play. That was their perspective. But Christianity takes a whole different perspective. The God of the Bible said, no, I worked. For six days I created. And now I'm making you in my image to work as well. Because work is a good thing. Work is important. And guess what? Work wasn't just at the beginning. It's going to be at the end. We are going to work in heaven. I don't know exactly what that's going to look like, but in Isaiah 60, we see 
an image of the eternal kingdom. And we see that people are working. So work is, work is going to be part of eternity. And that's a good thing because work is good. One of the most beautiful pictures of work that we see in the Bible is Jesus himself. Anybody remember his job? He was a carpenter. Jesus worked. So the God of the Bible, though, promises that work can be good, and he also promises that he's going to take care of our needs. Right? We work now to provide for our needs, right? Our food, our clothing, our housing, et cetera, et cetera. God promises, right? if, if you look at Philippians 4, 19, he says, and my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory of Christ Jesus. So here's a little exercise for yourself. How does God provide food for you? I'm sure most of you are going to go home and eat lunch or go out and eat lunch. How did that food get there? Did you grow it yourself? No. Somebody grew it. Maybe it's chicken, a farmer raised chickens. Maybe it's wheat or corn or whatever it is. There's a farmer who worked it. But, you know, we didn't usually go straight to the farmer. So farmer sells it to somebody else and somebody packages it and then it gets put in a store and then put on the shelves and then you go buy it and there's, there's this whole chain of people involved in you having a meal. I don't know how many hundreds of people are probably involved in that. Maybe thousands. But you see, God is providing that food for you. And so how is God providing that food for you? He's providing it through others. And you could go on and on. You could say the same thing about your clothes, about your house, about your car, about anything you want. Everything is provided but God is using people to provide it. There's a, a tale, some of you have probably heard this, not a tale, uh, an essay that was actually written. Um, it was first published in, in 1959, and it's called I Pencil. Maybe you've heard this. It's actually used mostly as an economic lesson um, about the global economy. But a man traces a pencil, and I actually had a pencil, and I, I left it back there, but if you look at a pencil, it's made out of wood, and it's got graphite in the middle. It's got this rubber eraser and a little tin thing that holds the eraser on. And the guy tried to, tried to show how complex a simple pencil is. You know, the rubber is, is you know, from rubber trees, and it's mixed with chemicals, and there's oil um, and polymers that are put into that. And then there's the graphite that's mined in different areas of the world, and there's paint that's sourced from somewhere else, and there's wood, you know, brought somewhere, and it's all shipped to other places, and the pencil's assembled. And he said that no one person in the world has all the knowledge to make a single pencil. And in fact, they traced it, and, and by their best estimates, there are close to a million people involved in making a single pencil. A million people to make a pencil. It's crazy. But every single one of those people in that chain somewhere, and most of them probably have no idea that their labors are making a pencil. Every single one of them is God's provision for you to have a writing tool. That's, and just think, 
If a pencil's that complex, how, how complex is this? Or how complex is your phone? I mean, millions of people every day are involved in God providing for you. Whatever you have, whatever you do, millions of people are involved in that. And so this means that no job is more important than another. Right? Because every single job is providing something for someone else. I think we can often compare status. We can often think, oh, I'm not a doctor saving lives. I'm just a school bus driver. Right? But think about the school bus driver. The school bus driver, right? He or she has to pick up the children, take them to school, and drop them off. But if, there's, if they're not there to do that, maybe the kids can't go to school, and that means maybe the parents can't go to work. And if the parents can't go to work, they can't get the money to buy the kids food. And if the kids can't get food they don't eat, they die. Or if the school bus driver messes up and gets in an accident, the kids die. If the kids don't go to school, they don't get educated. That means they're not going to be able to get a job when they get older. That means they're not going to have money. That means they can't buy their food and they die. And I know this sounds a bit crazy, but it's true. Without people doing their job right, people die. A school bus driver is incredibly important. Your job, whatever it is, is incredibly important because it's not just a million people providing for you. You are one of a million people providing for others. You are part of God's provision for millions of people around the world, and you don't even know it. Your job is incredibly important. And so how do we honor God doing this incredibly important job? Well, let me, uh, let me share this one verse real quick. Ephesians 4, 28. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. One of the easiest ways we can honor God is by taking what we're given and give it to somebody else. It's a very simple way. But there's so much more to it than what this verse is saying. Because this verse is truly saying that you are God's provision for others. More often than not, you're not going to see how you're God's provision for others. More often than not, it's just going to happen, and you won't even realize it. But if we start to understand how we are God's provision for others, it changes everything. It means there is no status. It means it doesn't matter if you're a plumber or a doctor or a builder or you do sales, whatever it is. Your job is important, and there's no status. There's no comparing it because you are part of God's plan and provision for others, which is beautiful. It means there's no such thing as white collar or blue collar or high paying or low paying or even religious or secular work. It's all honoring to God because you're part of a beautiful plan that God has to provide for others. 
Your work is important, and there is dignity to it. Every single job is important. Every single job has dignity. So what's the best way to do your job and honor God? Do it well. You know, I mentioned if you're the plumber, well, unclog those drains. Put in those pipes well. If you're the school bus driver, get the kids to school on time. Don't crash. If you're a salesman, man, be the best salesman you can be. Honor God in your work because that's what he wants you to do. Because you're part of that provision. So the better you do that job, the better you're providing for others. Do your job well. But don't think you're so important, just like the ants, that you can't be replaced. There's probably always going to be somebody better, right? Always going to be somebody better than you, unless maybe you're Michael Jordan, you know? <laughs> but do your job well. But don't think you're so important that you can't be replaced. There's always going to be somebody waiting if something happens. But know that your job is, is important. And know that there is dignity in your work, but because it's not so important, it is not the source of your dignity. There's so much more to who you are than your job. You're a, a family member, right? You're a parent, child, sibling. You're a member of your neighborhood. Maybe a member of this church, or you, you come to this church. There's so much more to who you are than your job. And the most important thing is, is that you are created in the image of God. And he calls you his child. And so God is a proud father who does take joy in the work you do. God is up there saying, he's looking at his daughter and saying, Ma'am, I love the way she paints those nails. She brings creativity and beauty and joy into that person's hand. Man, that's a reflection of me. I love that. Or he looks at the, the guy mowing the lawn and he says, man, he's doing such a good job. That's my son. I'm so proud of the way he mows that grass. Look at him pull up those weeds. He's trying to make that look like my garden in heaven. I love that. That's, that's beautiful. I'm so proud of him for doing his job well. God is a proud, proud father. And he loves it when you take pride in the work you do. He doesn't love it when you're prideful in the work you do. But he loves it when you take pride in the work you do. And this is the beautiful thing, too, is that because God is a proud father, we get to honor him in the work we do. And so when we're doing work, and in our interactions with the people we have, we want to honor God with the conversations, with the quality, and with just our general conduct. This means we're going to do our work with integrity. We're going to do our work well. We're going to bring our faith into our work and not leave it at home. It doesn't mean you're going to go around yelling Jesus every time you see somebody, but it does mean that there is morality, integrity, beauty, and joy that you can bring to your work that somebody without God can't. And so 
no, know that your job is important. And know that God has you in that job for beautiful reasons. Now, I, I mentioned how rest was broken. The good news is that God also brought rest into the world. He worked for six days, but on the seventh day, he rested. And he called those a good thing, too. And so there is a need for rest. We are supposed to rest. Once again, I'm going to look at the ants real quick for this. I had no idea. An ant takes about 250 naps a day. Sounds crazy, doesn't it? Now, they're all about a minute long, so it's not like they're sleeping a bunch. But ants need to rest. And I think sometimes we think of rest as juxtaposed to work, that they're opposites. And that's just, that's not true. Sometimes you're not always working when you're resting, but rest isn't nothing. I, I like to cook. I enjoy cooking a very good steak. If you ever want to come have a wonderful steak, you can talk to me afterwards. Um, but rest is a lot like cooking. If, if you know anything about cooking meat, you're supposed to let meat rest after you cook it. And what this does is it, it allows the juices to reabsorb back into the meat, filling the fibers, and it makes the steak more tender and more likable. Same with chicken or pork or any other type of meat. You're supposed to let it rest. Let those juices get back in. Rest is supposed to make you more tender and more likable too. I, it really is. If you are finding that rest is something you're craving so much that you get annoyed when you don't get it, you're not doing rest right. Rest is supposed to fill us up. It's supposed to be enjoyment and relaxation and recuperation and play and worship and spending time with friends and family and doing things you love. But it, you got to let it fill you up. Whatever it is, it can't be something that's just going to exhaust you. And you can't let it become your purpose. Can't let it become your purpose. Because no matter how much rest you have in this world, it's never going to be enough. Because it's still broken. And the, the beautiful thing is that the rest on this earth is just a shadow of the true rest awaiting us. And there is one who came to give us true rest. And we will get to experience. Because Jesus did the true work, and he will give us the true rest. Everything I mentioned about work, the hardships of it, the brokenness of it, the beauty of it, is true of our spiritual work too. Just as physical labors can cause blisters on our feet and callus on our hands, our spiritual labors can cause blisters and calluses on our heart. When we're doing it wrong, our hearts turn to stone. The Bible says that, right? We, we think we're earning our salvation with our work. We think we're earning our rest with our work. 
or we become so disillusioned with it that we just stop our spiritual work altogether. And then we think that we find our worth and approval before God in the way we work spiritually for him. And that's just not true. If you are in Christ, you will never stop being God's son or daughter. It's nothing you do or do not do that will take away that identity. You are his. And you are his because Jesus did the work. Do you remember the results of the fall? The ground was cursed, sweat on our brow and our labor, thorns come out and choke the weeds, our backs aches, our hands and feet grow blistered and callous, and our bodies are broken. Well, there's a man who became the curse for us. Because cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. And he sweat from his brow too. But he sweat blood in the Garden of Gethsemane. And those thorns that came up out of the ground that choke our work, well, they were formed into a crown and nailed into his head. And man, his back hurt too. He took 39 lashes and it ripped the flesh off of it. But it says that by those stripes we are healed. And his hands and feet, they were nailed to a cross. And he was lifted up and his body was broken for you. Jesus did the work. If there is anything you hear today, Jesus did the work for your salvation. And when he did that work, he took away all the brokenness of this world. He took away the brokenness of life, the brokenness of death, the brokenness of relationships, and yes, the brokenness of work and the brokenness of rest. He took on all the brokenness of the fall. And he took that callous heart of stone and he gave you a new one. Jesus worked himself to death for you. And then the death of Christ is the death of all brokenness. And then Jesus gave us rest. It didn't end with his death. Jesus rose from the grave. And he ascended into heaven, and he is preparing a new garden, and he's preparing a place for us to rest for all of eternity. A true rest, a true home, where you will live and work and enjoy and play and worship and you will experience the fullness of who you were created to be. And there will be a no end to this rest, and you will never grow bored with it. And it's going to be beautiful. Because for all of eternity, your work, your rest, will be whole. And you will get to worship and play and sing and dance. And we're going to get to learn and study, right? We're finite beings. We're going to get to keep learning in heaven. And we're going to get to study things. And I'm excited about that. 
I can't wait to get to study and learn more about creation, more about the world, more about history, and more about nature. In fact, I can't wait to get up there and maybe get to spend a little more time going to the ants and considering our ways. Let me pray. Lord, I thank you for your word. I thank you for how much we can learn from it. I thank you that there is so much beauty and joy that we find in your word. And I thank you that you have created us to work and created us to rest. And I pray that we would take dignity or that we would find dignity and joy in our work and in our rest. And we would know that our work is important. It's important to others' lives and it's important to you. And there is so much significance in what each one of us do. But Lord, we ultimately thank you that you did the work for our salvation. And that you are the one preparing a place for us to work and rest for all eternity. We pray these things in your name. Amen.